Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, if you would please. Hebrews chapter 12. We need to have faith in the night as well as in the day. You know, Job said, Behold, I go forward, he's not there. I go backward, he's not there. I go to the left, he's not, can't find him. Go to the right, you know. But he know, I know that he knoweth the way that I take. So we just need to trust in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, as we continue in our study of this book of Hebrews. <clears throat> a lot of great things here in this book. But I'm going to start reading this morning in verse 5, and I'm going to read down through verse 17. And I'll title this message, Chastening and Exercise in Righteousness. An Exercise in Righteousness, Chastening. Hebrews 12, verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be, be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. That word for after their own pleasure mean as they thought was right. Not like they enjoyed it. They thought it was right. That's kind of the idea. Anyway, verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yield for the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he had no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again. The opportunity and privilege is ours to open your precious word. We thank you for... Uh, the instruction and the, the um, challenge that gives to us, the exhortation. Uh, we pray as we look into the Word of God today that we center our thoughts and attention upon you, allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts, to bring glory to yourself. And, Father, that we might be encouraged and strengthened. We pray that it would be for our help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story in Second Chronicles chapter 33, familiar with some of you, I'm sure, about a man who had a godly father, one of the better kings in the nation of Israel, and yet he was the most wicked king Judah ever had. The most wicked king. He had great, he had great opportunities to serve the Lord. He was, his father was Hezekiah. But the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 9 that Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Judah to err 
and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and his people, to his people, but they would not hearken. And then it says this, Wherefore the Lord brought upon the cap- them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him, and he was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. You know, what we see here is the chastening hand of God upon King Manasseh. He, God chastened him severely. He took him with fetters and thorns. You know, I kind of like to think that he was whipped with some kind of whip that had thorns in it. You know, he had, he had everything that he could want, but he didn't serve the Lord. But in affliction, he besought the Lord. And chastening of the Lord is an exercise for us in righteousness. As we consider this this morning, you know, God uses chastening to draw us closer to himself, to conform us into the image of Christ. We've been looking at this for a couple of weeks. But I'll notice again a couple of things here. I'm going to kind of expand upon a few things I said last, last week. First of all, chastening is proof of relationship. Chastening is proof of relationship, or you might say of sonship or daughtership. That's a word. <laughs> it's not a word. I'll make it up. You know, um, it's it's proof of relationship, and and the and and he gives a uh, twofold argument here, and we see this as verses five through nine. First of all, the first basis of his argument is in in uh, that from the scriptures, and where in Proverbs three eleven and twelve it says. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he corrected, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. You know, you, we could go to, to Jeremiah chapter 30. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 30. And Jeremiah is basically a book of judgment. He's telling Israel or Judah particularly, that God is going to judge you for your sins. You're going to be carried away unto Babylon. And you need to submit to the king of Babylon because it is God's going to judge you. You've gone beyond the place of return of being escaped in judgment. You are going to be judged. But even in that judgment, he gives hope. He gives hope. In chapter 30, he talks about this judgment and, and so on, and I'm not going to read all this for sake of time, uh, but in chapter 31, it says in verse 1, At the same time, saith the Lord, Will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people? Thus saith the Lord, The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built. O virgin of Israel, thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. 
Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them. But the common things. So he's just tell them, look, you know, though I'm 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 chastising you with the judgment of the king of the kings of Babylon. Yet there's gonna I have I still love you, and on one day I'm gonna bring you back, and you're gonna plant vineyards in the mountains of Samaria in the land of Israel again. Daniel nine, verse twenty four talks about the. They're making an end of sins. You know, the tribulation period, the seven-year period after the rapture of the, of, of, of the saints, will usher in the tribulation period. It's going to be a time of judgment upon the nation of Israel to make an end of their sins, to bring reconciliation. Bring reconciliation. After all, Romans 9 tells us in verses 26 to 28 that they are beloved of the fathers. And the fathers, of course, refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and again, the idea here is that just because God chastened you, because God chastened you proves that you are His. You know, in Romans 8, verse, no, I'm sorry, Romans 9, and verse 26, it says, It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah is also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. A remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And, and, and so, uh, and then in chapter 11, in, in verse uh, uh, 27 says, For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. You know, they persecuted the early churches, but so they were enemies of the churches, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. Again, the fathers are refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom was made an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. They are God's people. And verse 29 says, For the gifts and calling of God without repentance, God's not going to change his mind about Israel being his people. And just as, and, and in the same way, there's no change in God's mind when he accepts you and I in the beloved. And the, really, the, when in Ephesians there, one, I think it's verse 6, where it says we're accepted in the beloved, it, the idea is there, the beloved one. In the beloved refers to Jesus Christ. We're accepted in him. And God will never change his mind. However, as a father, he will chasten you and I. You know, Israel's still being chastened. They're still being chastened. They're still considered under the mercy of Gentile nations. You know, they're not considered the powerhouse of the world. They don't, they don't have dominion as they once did. They're subservient to the Gentile nations, and they will be till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Then King Jesus comes and rules and reigns on the throne of David's throne in Jerusalem. And so, so we see here the basis of his argument is, is twofold, twofold. First of all, the, the scriptures, the promises made, and then we see the example also of an earthly father in, uh, in, in verse uh, 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 7. He says, but if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. What son is he whom the father chasteneth not? 
Verse 9, Furthermore, we have had a fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the fathers and spirits, and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. And again, the after their own pleasure has the idea as they saw fit or saw right. So, you know, and, and Solomon wrote in Proverbs 1, verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, forsake not the law of thy mother. Now, that word instruction there in Proverbs 1 is translated instruction 30 times. But eight times it's translated correction, and four times it's translated chasten, and three times chastisement. And so when Solomon is talking about, hear the instruction of thy father, he's saying, look, you need to listen to what he tells you and when he corrects you, when he disciplines you. And he says, you don't forsake the law of thy mother. Did you ever have your mother lay down the law, Bradley? You know, moms have a way of laying down the law. You know, when dad's not home, they're the ones that lay down the law. You know, I, I know one thing. I didn't want to cross my mother. She would lay down the law. And she would pick up the rod if need be. She wasn't afraid to do it. And so we have these examples. And, you know, and parents, parents discipline their own children. I have, I have never disciplined anyone else's children except maybe they're my grandchildren. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, other people's children really aren't my responsibility. I don't have any ownership over them. I'm not responsible for them. But I am responsible for my own. And the Bible tells us that we are to correct our children in many places. Proverbs 13, 20, 24 says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Betimes. Often. You spare the rod. You know, that's contrary to what the world's telling us today, isn't it? 17 says, Thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. The reason there's so much chaos and confusion in many houses is because children are without correction. And they run the place. You know, a wise father understands that a child will do things that are self-destructed because they are sinners by nature. Therefore, he will correct them. You know, we have an example in the Bible of one who was never chastened. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, it speaks of Adonijah, who was the father or the brother of Absalom, who, who when King David was dying, you know, got Joab and, and Ahithophel and some other people and, and, and you know, went to, to a certain place and, and was going to put himself, you know, have himself anointed king. And the Bible says there, and his father, that was David, had not displeased him at any time. And that, the word displeased means pained him. He had never pained that boy. Therefore, he just kind of did what he wanted. You know, a earthly father will pain his children time and, time, time and again. He will correct them. Even as our Heavenly Father will pain us, 
He will chasten us. So chastening is proof of relationship. In fact, he says, if verse 8, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. There's no exceptions. Then are you bastards and not sons. In other words, you're not really a child of God. God doesn't chasten the devil's children. But he does chasten his own. So, proof of relationship. Secondly, we see the purpose of chastening is for our profit. It's for our profit. Again, notice a couple of things here. We see this in verses 10 and 11. But it is, first of all, it is for our sanctification. Verse 10, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. The word partakers means to take or to participate in. The word holiness has the idea of sanctity. So we're to be, the purpose of his chasing is to make us participants of his holiness. You know, even as you know, Manasseh defiled the temple of God, the worship of God, but when God chastened him, he, he brought him back and made him, or brought him into a to place where he participated then in the holiness of God. Now, in this process, in the Bible, we call it sanctification. And it's an ongoing process. It's not a one-time done deal. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. Even as child training is ongoing until they become adults. Oh, some I wonder about. But, you know, uh, you know when, they, when they become adults, you're supposed to be done training children. Uh, but anyway... And this, this is really, set, you know, we're set apart to sanctify means to set apart or set apart to holiness or God-likeness. And sanctification is a work of the heart. You know, we don't, we don't become holy by adopting clean habits or ho- holding certain standards. You know, many people in the world have, have clean habits. They're moral people, you might say. Uh, they, they, have, they have some... Some, some, some measure of some standards of things. You know, they don't, maybe they won't lie or they won't cheat or, you know, these kind of things. And, and, and maybe even a, a limit of, of dress they may have. They may hold these certain standards. That's not really biblical sanctification necessarily. It could be the fruit of it, but that's not sanctification. You know, sanctification is the work of the God. It's the work of the Spirit of God in the heart. It's, in, it's, a, it's a matter of the heart. Romans 15, 16 says, Paul said, I should be minister of Jesus Christ as Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. So it's a work of the Holy Ghost. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 51, you know, after his sin with Bathsheba, David penned Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance, and there's some... Interesting things he says there in verse 6 through 12. He says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. Now he's talking about his heart, not just his outer man. In the inward parts. You know, I've often said, and it is true, that if the inward parts are right, the outward parts will take care of themselves. But you can be good on, look good on the outside and be filthy on the inside. Um, but anyway, behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, verse 6, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to, the, to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a heart, O God, and restore and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy holy thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. So he says, thou desire truth in the inward parts. In the heart. In the heart. Sanctification is a work of the heart. Uh, you know, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. So, it, it, and really, it's, the idea is of putting off the works of the flesh, the attitudes of the flesh, the reactions of the flesh, and submitting to the Spirit and putting on the new man. And, of course, we see this uh, spelled out for us over in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 20 through 24, where the Bible says, But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off. So here's some things that ought to be evident in your life. If God is working your heart, and, and you've been renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23 tells us that, so you ought to put off the former conversation, you old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of the mind. That's where it begins, a renewal of the mind. And it'll change your heart that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And again, this is a work of the heart. Wherefore, put away lying, and now it's going to start coming out. As you renew your mind and your heart, it'll start working itself out, and you'll... You'll, you'll put away lying and you'll speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. You know, when it says you are members one of another, you know, all of us are creations of God. All of us are made in the image of God. You know, if we really understood that, all, that every man that we deal with, every woman that we talk to, every child that we talk to is a person made in the image of God, maybe it would change the way we view people. They're not just devilish. No, they were made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. And so we just speak every man truth with his neighbor. And neighbors really is anyone you meet. According to the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus told in Luke, Luke, the book of Luke, then he says, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the Son of down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him lay. See, these are the outworkings of the inworking of the Spirit of God in your heart. It begins to work itself out. It changes your desires, your wants. And that is the work of sanctification. You know, when the Lord brings chastening, and we submit to that chastening, we yield to it, to the Spirit of God, and not to the pressures of trials, and thereby respond in holiness and righteousness. It's for our profit. We become more Christ-like. When Jesus reviled, he what? He reviled not again. See, he didn't lower himself to the standard of man. You know, I had an old guy in Maine one time, he said, you need it's tit for tat in this world. You know, treat, people treat you ugly, you need to treat them ugly back. And that was kind of his philosophy. And he was always blasting the Jews. He had this hatred for the Jews. 
And one day I told him, I said, Ernest, let me tell you something. I said, the only reason I help you is because of a Jew who died on a cross almost 2,000 years ago to save your soul from hell. And if it wouldn't be for that Jew, I wouldn't lift a finger to help you because you certainly aren't deserving of it. He never said anything to me about a Jew again. You see, that Jew, Jesus Christ, set an example of holiness for us. He set an example of what sanctification means, holiness in the heart. The second thing we see here, chastening is to exercise, is, is an exercise for fruit bearing. If you notice in verse 11, it says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peace of fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, it, it, he, he says here, No chastening of the present seemed to be joyous. You know, when I was a child, chastening. It was not, did not seem like a good thing at all. I did not joy in it. I did not delight in it. It was a grievous thing. I disliked it very much. It hurt. It hurt. It was physical pain and emotional pain. My pride was hurt also. And I did not understand when I was a child that it had a purpose. That it really had a purpose. But you notice he says there's a word there. Nevertheless, afterward. Afterward. See, afterward, it was later, when I got older, after I'd received Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I began to understand the purpose of the chastening I got. As a child. But it wasn't until then. See, until then it was just painful. But then the purpose of my parents' chastening became very clear. You know, Proverbs 23, 12 says, and 13, Apply thine heart unto instruction and thy ears to the words of knowledge. And here's some very important instruction. Here are some words of knowledge, some words of wisdom. Withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. And now I see it like, thank you, mom and dad, for correcting me. I could be a child of the devil. How many children, how many adults today are children of the devil because they had parents that never corrected them, never established an authority in their life? And when they become adults, what God has the right to tell me what to do? Because their parents never made them, brought them into subjection to themselves. See, my parents chastened me for this purpose. That I might be bare fruit. Look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And verses 1 through 5. John 15. Jesus talks about fruit bearing. He said, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. 
Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Notice, every branch that's in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, you know, Bible words are important. And he says, every branch in me that beareth not fruit. If there's something in your life that isn't bearing fruit, he's going to cut it off. He's going to work cutting it off. Just like on a tree. Now, I'm not, my dad was into, you know, he had a few, a small orchard, you might say, and, and you know, he grafted trees and all that. And I'm, I, I didn't receive that, that gift or that ability to do that. Don't have the same interest he had. But, but anyway, I do know that, you know, there's, there's what they call suckers will grow off. And, and, they're, and they're just shoots that come off the tree, maybe at the base of the tree, and, but they take, they take nutrients from the tree and they never produce. They're, they're just worthless. They're just, and they grow quite rapidly. You know what a pruner will do? He'll cut them off because they never bear fruit. Now they're on the tree. They're part of the tree, but he'll cut them off. He'll just cut them off because they're worthless. All they do is draw nutrients from the tree that could go to other parts of the tree that would bear fruit. So he just cuts them off. You know, if there's something in your life that God sees that is not profitable for fruit bearing, he's going to endeavor to cut it off. He's going to never cut it off. That's not always easy to take. But then he says, every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. You know, if you want to get the most out of a fruit tree, you prune it. You prune it. I remember years ago, uh, we went on a hayride. This was soon after we were married, I believe. We went on a hayride with uh, some uh, uh, youth group from another church. And, uh, and I can't remember why we were even there. I don't know if I preached that or, or, or what was going on. Anyway, there was a man there who, who, had, who had moved to Indiana, Pennsylvania, and, and he, was, uh, he had taught school there in the Mount Union area. And he had a place, and he had this uh, apple tree that would grow apples, if you pruned it right, would grow apples, one apple would make a pie. One apple would make a pie. And so what he would do, he would prune that tree, he would pick those apples, take them to the sale barn over in Bell, and sell them for a dollar a piece. One apple, a dollar. And people buy them things. You know, he'd have some other smaller apples there, and then people come by, and he said they'd look at these smaller apples, and then I want one of them big ones. You know, he said them big ones would go like, like crazy. But you had to prune a tree. And in that, hay, in, in that hayride, we went by this place that he used to own, and he an apple tree, and he said they haven't pruned it because it had all these little apples on it. You see, it wasn't as profitable because they didn't prune it. See, God wants the most out of your life. He wants the greatest blessing for your life. And if there's something that's bearing fruit, that could bear more fruit, he's going to prune it. That means you're cutting off some things, some twigs. You thin, the, basically what you do is thin the tree. Thin the tree. There's the stuff you cut off. So, it's for fruit bearing. 
And he, and he goes on in this passage, and he says in verse uh, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, and as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. I in the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. Men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Here is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. If you're a disciple of Christ, he's going to cut off anything that's not bearing fruit. He's going to work cutting off anything that's not bearing fruit in your life, and he's going to work to prune those things that are bearing fruit to make it more fruitful, more useful. In other words, he's going to chasten us to yield the fruit of righteousness, peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I know I'm running out of time, so let's look at the third thing here quickly. Enduring chastening is the path to pursue. Now, it is enduring. We always said it's not, no pres- chastening for the present seemed to be joyous, but grievous. It is difficult. He says in verse 7, if ye endure chast- chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. And so we do endure chastening. Uh, we're not to despise it. You know, to endure it is a choice. We have to choose to endure it or not to endure it. We have that choice. We are, after all, we have a free will. You know, the prodigal rebelled against the father's correction, against the father's restraint, and the father let him go. He let him go. You know, Esau cared more about satisfying the desires of his flesh, and he lost. He's the one lost. He lost the benefit of the birthright. The special blessing of the promises made to his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. There was everlasting covenant. He lost it. It was given to Jacob because he despised the birthright. He didn't care about spiritual things. All he was concerned about was, is my belly full? Do I have sufficient to eat? Can I satisfy my flesh? You see, if you will endure the chastening, you will enjoy the fruits of chastening. But if you're not, you will not. If you will not endure the chastening and will not be exercised thereby, the chastening will cripple you instead. See, what could be for a blessing can turn out to cripple you. Notice verse 13. It says, And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way but let it rather be healed. Now, you have to allow for that. The word cripple or lame here means to cripple. It means to be maimed. It really, the idea is to be ruined in your effectiveness as a soldier of Jesus Christ. <coughs> you know, on the battlefield, landmines are a common thing. They, they plant landmines. You know, and not always are they... And I remember a, a, a Marine major talking about this in Vietnam. Many, you know, they the, the uh, North Vietnamese, you planted landmines everywhere, and, and they weren't necessarily for the purpose of killing you, but to cripple you. 
And because if they could cripple a soldier, it not only handicapped him, but others would stay around and try and help him. So again, it, 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 it caused the whole unit to be less effective because one man was crippled. And it made them easier targets for the enemy. And that's the idea here. That which is lame be turned out of the way. You know, there is the possibility of one turning away from God, rebelling against God's correction. And he says, we need to look diligently, verse 15, looking diligently, looking carefully, beware, beware of our attitude, where our feelings lead us or control us. You know, your runaway feelings are like a runaway horse. Did you ever see a horse run off? I didn't grow up with horses, but one of the farmers I worked for for a few years had some horses. And uh, one day, one of them got out. It, it, it slipped by in the gate when we was trying to cat, get them to take for a ride. And man, that thing just bolted, took off right out through the fence. I mean, it paid no attention to fences. You know, and the boss, he was saying, oh, well, you know. And it, it just ran through the fence in one place. It came back, running through the fence another place. And it just kind of run around until he quickly went and got a bucket of grain and, you know, and coaxed it and finally got it to... To, to, to eat the grain out of the bucket, and then he, and he grabbed it. But it just, you know, it just went crazy. You know, my nephew had, has a horse, and one day it got out. And again, it just run wild. It, 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 it ran off. It went six miles right down the street of McAlevey's Fort. And I said, the street, because there's only one. Little Pennsylvania town. Six miles from home, it ran right down the street of McAlevey's Fort. It just run wild. You know, that's like a person not under the control of the Spirit. They just do what they feel like it. Just like they feel like it. Whatever seems right to them. You know, it can damage all relationships. Verse 15 tells us, Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Just like that injured soldier, it's going to cause many to be hindered in their mission. A spirit of bitterness or rebellion against the chastened hand of God can defile not only you, but others. You know, Esau's disregard for the chastening and the will of God affected him and his children and his parents. You can become profane, really following the whims of your feelings and desires of your flesh. You know, profane really means heathenish. And, and to follow your feelings is heathenish. To be controlled by your feelings. You know, I just heard this recently. You know, many adults, quote-unquote, blame their problems and their actions and their sins on their parents. They're adults. And I'm not just talking about 20-year-olds. I'm talking about 50-, 60-year-olds. You know, if, they were, if you told them they were still acting like children in their hearts, they'd be highly offended. But the reality is these grown adults in body are allowing their parents to control their feelings and actions. They've never really grown up or become self-responsible. They continue to measure themselves by their parents, not the word of God. That's profane. That's what he calls it here. You know, people are talking about race reparations. That's what that is. Let's lay the blame on our ancestors, you know. 
You know, I never enslaved anybody, so why should I pay for reparations? But you know, just as Paul wrote to these Hebrews in Hebrews 6, 9, I would say to you, but beloved, as it says in Hebrews 6, 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. See, we, God's encouraging us here through his word to pursue straight paths, to stand up. Notice in verse, verse 11, he says, Wherefore, lift up the hands with hang back. Hang down with discouragement and defeat and, 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 and you know, a bad attitude or, or bitterness. Lift up your hands. And, and, and he says, and the feeble knees, you know, the weak knees. You've given in. You succumb to the wiles of the devil. So stand up. Strengthen your knees. Make straight paths for your feet. Straight paths refers to upright, not crooked. You know, it's the path that God has for us. You know, Proverbs twelve fifteen says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. You know, a path is a right course of conduct. It, it's, it refers to the track of a wheel, even a rut, if you will. You know, if you're in a good rut, stay there. But if you're in a, in, a, in a bad rut, you need to get out. But you know, it's not easy getting out of a rut, is it? Not easy getting out of a rut. If you've lived in a rut for a long time, you're going to have a hard time breaking that habit. But you know what? Through the power of God, you can. And God may chasten you and chasten you and chasten you and get you out of that rut. But he desires that you get out of that rut and it's for your profit. It's for your profit. That ye might be partakers of his holiness. See, the, work, the Lord is working our lives to get us out of our own way of leaning on self and getting us to rest in him. And, it, and notice it says, follow peace. You know, resting in him is the way of peace. Just like Correct thy son, and he shall give thee what? Rest. You want peace in the home? There needs to be correction. There needs to be chastening. If you want peace with God, you need to endure the chastening. You need to accept it, learn from it. Learn to rest in him. That that he's not, not not the idea though, well, he's not being fair. No, we need to accept. God's way is best. He knows what is best. And I accept it. You know, Paul had, one of the things Paul talked about over and over again was the peace of God. He said, I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to be abandoned. Both to be full and to be hungry. And whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. He was at rest. He was at peace with God. It didn't matter what state he was in. Because he knew that God's ways were best, were right. And whatever God allowed in his life, even that thorn in the flesh, he allowed in his life for his good, lest he'd be exalted above measure. You see, that trial magnified the power of God in Paul's life. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God. First Timothy 3, or 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Again, that's your heart. You know, he is to have preeminence in all things. You know, the story is told by the late 
Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. He has a book on illustrations. And the story goes like this. It says, one of my dearest friends, a man, a man my, his age, lost his left arm at the shoulder when he was only seven years old. Until he was 12, he cried himself to sleep every night. It was hard to regard this amputation as the good, well-pleasing, and perfect will of God. Then he began to conquer his handicap by tucking a long-handled hoe under his armpit. He learned to hoe as many rows as his brothers, and he didn't get as tired as they did hoeing, for in using two arms, they overworked their wrists. Later, he sold insurance. He sold life insurance and was a success. He learned to play handball soon beating all comers and held the national championships for many years. And you can look this guy up. It's, this is a true story. One day he learned of a 13-year-old boy who had just gone through the same amputation. The boy had no will to live, and his condition was rapidly worsening. My friend took a scrapbook, went to the hospital to see the boy. Nothing was said about the arm, but the boy looked at the various newspaper clippings that recounted one armed champion's prowess at golf, hunting, fishing, and so on. Finally, he asked if it was really true. My friend removed his shirt and showed his armless shoulder. The boy sighed deeply and soon fell asleep. Three days later, he was on the mend and soon left the hospital. My friend has spent his life with insurance, athletics, and Christian work among young people in that ascending order of importance. He has testified many times to his satisfaction with life and with the will of God for him. It was not well-pleasing at first to be the town cripple, but the compensations were so great that he soon, that he soon, were so great that he soon found God's way to be best way for him, and he would not have it any other way. Whenever we recognize the rights of God and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, he takes up this work of discipline in order to give us his best. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says this, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. In other words, he's going to work in our lives to bring about his glory and his will which is always our best. We are his redeemed work of grace, and this work of grace begins with salvation and will continue until we go are called home to glory. Titus 2, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldliness at last, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. See, our Heavenly Father chastens us for our profit, that we might bring forth his righteousness, that his will may be perfected in our lives. And we have a choice. We have a choice. We can endure it, or we can rebel against it. But if you are a child of God, God is going to chasten you. And if you endure it, it will bring about the peaceable 
fruit of righteousness if you exercise yourself therein. But you've got to exercise yourself. You've got to be willing to accept it, willing to learn from it. Being aware that rejecting God's plan and purposes in our life will cripple us. Even like a crippled soldier. So is God working in your life? Is the Heavenly Father working in your life to refine you into His likeness? And are you yielding His working? Or are you resisting? Do you know the Lord? As your Are you truly His son, His daughter, His child?